Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the Spirit. We recognize, Lord, that it is you who dwells in us, that the Spirit is you, a distinct person within the Trinity, but it is fully all that you are dwelling in us. God, we, we thank you for your nearness to us. We thank you for your presence in our life. We know from your word that these things are objectively true. And yet, Father, as we live our day-to-day lives, we sometimes struggle with a real experiential awareness of your nearness to us. And so, God, we just pray this morning as we look at these passages, as we look at what Luke has to say to Theophilus in the book of Acts regarding these things, as he introduces the Spirit We pray, God, that you would help us to understand just exactly what it means to have that intimate relationship with you, even though we may not experience it the way we see it here in the book of Acts. We pray, God, that you do this by your spirit. And it is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. There's a great rock and ballad that was written in the early 80s. I'm sure you've heard it if you've ever listened to classical, classical oldies rock radio. Darling, you got to let me know, should I stay or should I go? Written by The Clash in 1982, it was one of the top charts that year. It went up all the way up. And uh, it's really a pretty catchy tune. It has an interesting uh, melody to it. But essentially, the question is, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you're looking for me to do? In the years that followed the release of this song, the band ultimately broke up as a result of drug and alcohol-fueled infighting and differences of opinion. That's the polite way to say that they basically hated each other. But in the early 90s, they got together and they did a reunion tour. And there was an interview that took place. And they asked the question, what exactly were you writing this particular song about? This song, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And the lead singer of the band, Mick Jones, at the time that the song was written, was involved in a relationship with an actress, an aspiring actress and an accomplished musician by the name of Ellen Foley, who also was addicted to cocaine. And as a result of the fact that they weren't living in the same reality with each other, they were always arguing over whether or not they should be together. They could never seem to come to peace in terms of their relationship. And so this song was written as a tribute to the frustration that Mick Jones experienced dating Ellen Foley. Darling, you gotta let me know, should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine, I will be here till the end of time. But you've gotta let me know, should I stay or should I go? That sounds sweet, right? Sounds nice. And then the next verse. It's always tease, tease, tease. You're happiest when I'm on my knees. One day it's fine, and next it's black. So if you want me off your back, well, come on and let me know. A little darker. Should I stay or should I go? If I stay, there will be trouble. But if I go, it will be double. In other words, it doesn't matter what I do in this relationship, there will be pain. Now, is he writing about Ellen Foley, or is this somehow spiritually inspired, talking about the indecision facing the apostles in Acts chapter 1? I'm sure you were all wondering how I was going to get there. Well, I have arrived. That is my introduction. Listen, you have just observed Jesus Christ come back out of the grave. He has conquered over sin. He has conquered over death. 
Wow, what a miracle to behold. What a thing to see. You are pumped. You are motivated. He is there with you on the mountain. In just a few moments, he's going to ascend up into heaven. And he is sitting here saying to you, guess what, guys? I don't want you to go. I don't want you to go. I want you to stay. And yet, as he's talking with the disciples, there is this indication that you're going to be witnesses, that you're going to go to the ends of the earth, that you're going to proclaim the gospel, and there's no beating around the bush. One of the things that Jesus is making absolutely clear is, when you go, there's going to be trouble. You're going to suffer. It's going to hurt. And yet, having seen him risen from the grave, having been aware of the fact that he has conquered over death, you got to think that maybe on some level there's at least a little bit of excitement. They're just itching to go. So if we jump the gun and we go, we're going to get into trouble. When we stay, it's going to hurt. When we do go, there will be trouble. But what if we don't stay? You understand all these questions are just swirling around in their head. And the reason why Jesus is telling them that they can't go, why they have to stay for this moment in time, is because there is something they need which he has not yet given them. And if they don't get this gift, then it doesn't matter. They won't have any success. They won't accomplish anything of any lasting merit. And he says to them in verse 3, verse 2, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. This is where he indicates, this is where Luke writing to Theophilus indicates that one of the major themes, one of the major ideas that we need to be paying attention to as we work our way through the book of Acts is the reality of the Holy Spirit, a presence that is with us, that indwells us, which later he's going to describe as us having been baptized with. And we have to wait on this spirit. He says to them, after giving commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, jump down to verse 4, while staying with them, notice the wording, he ordered them. This is not a suggestion. This is not a sound piece of advice. This isn't just really good counsel. This is a command. Jesus is king, and his statement to them is, you stay put. You are ordered not to go, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And he goes on in verse 5, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they have this promise that they're going to have the Holy Spirit. And they have this promise that they are not, they have this order, this commandment from Christ that they are not to leave Jerusalem until they get the Holy Spirit. Implicit in that statement is this idea they understand what it is that Christ is asking them to do. They understand that he is saying to them, you're to be my witnesses, you're to take the gospel, the message to the ends of the earth. You're not leaving here. You don't go to do that until you have received the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that he has to make it explicit, don't go, indicates that at least one or two of the individuals within this group are itching to go. Maybe Peter. He's the impulsive one. Probably he's ready to go. Others in the group, probably not so impulsive, probably not so eager, like Thomas, who made the statement, the famous, infamous statement, unless I can put my hand into the holes and into the scar in his side, I will never believe. So within this group, you've got some guys that are probably ready to go, and you've got some guys that are probably reluctant to go. The thing that they need, regardless of their disposition, 
is the Holy Spirit. Luke introduces Theophilus to this concept of the Holy Spirit. And you'll recall, as we said last week, Luke begins his first account to Theophilus, the gospel, with that statement in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that he's writing this account in order that you, O Theophilus, may have certainty, that you may have confidence, that you may have conviction. And last week we focused on the reality of Christ, us resurrected and ascended. One of the reasons why Luke is writing, one of the things he's discussing in his first account is the fact that Jesus has ascended and he is in heaven, But here's something else that Theophilus needs to know. There is a Holy Spirit that has been sent forth by Christ. That Spirit indwells us, and the reality of the church moving and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is another evidence that should give us certainty and confidence. As you stop back and you think about the spread of Christianity, the fact that it has not died out, the fact that it has survived numerous attempts at purge from torture to extermination, imprisonment, all manner of attempts have been made to silence the word of the gospel. And yet, it will not be silenced. Do we really attribute this to the effort of men? Or do we really attribute it to the empowering and the enablement of the supernatural Holy Spirit? Luke makes it clear from the get-go that we owe the success of the mission to the king who leads the charge, and we owe the success of the individuals who are following that king to the spirit who indwells them. He says here in the, in the first chapter of, of Acts, chapters 1 to 4, he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here is the image that Jesus is portraying to. These guys had all seen Billy Graham, sorry, had all seen John the Baptist in action. John the Baptist in the first century was like the modern day Billy Graham. That's where I was going with that. Got a little bit ahead of myself. John the Baptist in the first century was like a modern day Billy Graham. These guys had never seen Billy Graham. Don't misunderstand me. They had seen John the Baptist. And from their perspective, here is a guy who is an evangelist. He's preaching the gospel. He's going all over the countryside. He's a little bit eccentric, but he is preaching the gospel, and he is telling people to prepare for a coming king, to make their hearts ready, to make the path of the Lord straight. That's his message. And as these people are coming forward and accepting this message and saying, yes, we do want to receive this king. We want to make our lives ready for him to come and be among us. John is now baptized baptizing them. He is immersing them. That is what the word means. And this, this picture of immersion is a declaration that they are going to die to themselves, that their old way of life is coming to an end. And now as they're being risen from the water, symbolically, they're committing to live a life that is obedient and yielded to the command and the authority of Jesus. Now Jesus is leaving. He's going up into heaven. And his statement to his followers is that he is taking the baptism of John, the water baptism of John, and the baptism of the Spirit, which is coming soon, and he's going to tie them together in such a way that you understand the portrayal, the profession of faith that you make when you die to your old way of life and you're raised by the power of God to live a new life. This finds its fulfillment in a baptism that is coming next, not like the baptism of John, but the baptism that Jesus is going 
going to give when he sends forth the Holy Spirit. In the same way that you are immersed into death and raised to walk a new life, this is a profession, a commitment that you are going to yield to the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is saying this next step of witness and mission and ministry, this next step can only be accomplished if in the same way you declared your death to your old way of life and your obedience and submission to Christ in your new way of life, the only way you're going to accomplish this mission is if you will continue to yield, to die, to doing things your own way and yielding your life to the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Christ is getting at here. He says, baptized. The idea is not that we just think about the Holy Spirit, that we recognize that he's a person that's out there, but the wording is explicit. You heard from me, John baptized you with water. He put you into it. You were soaked in it. And now Christ is saying in the same way that you heard the baptism of John, now you're going to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It isn't like in the Old Testament. That's the distinction that Jesus is drawing. When we read the Old Testament, we encounter individuals, prophets and kings and all manner of heroes that were empowered by the Holy Spirit for a time to accomplish certain activities to the glory of God. Jesus is saying that the the coming of the Holy Spirit is supernatural. It's not like that. It's not a once and done type of thing. It's not like what we read about in the Old Testament where you get it to accomplish a specific task or a specific purpose. No, no, no. It's going to be given to you in full measure. When he says you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, He's not talking about getting a little sample of it for accomplishing some minor task. He's talking about being soaked with it for accomplishing the final task, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And although it isn't explicit here, there are two themes which we will track as we work our way through the book of Acts. There are two major themes that Luke wishes to emphasize. Now, if we were to go to other passages of Scripture, we would see that the Holy Spirit has a teaching role. He has a role of opening our minds to understand the Scriptures, to illuminate the text before us. John makes, Jesus makes the statement in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit will bring to the believer's remembrance all that he has taught. If we were to go to some of the writings of Paul, such as Romans, we would discover that the Holy Spirit is the means by which we put to death the old man, the sinful nature that man of flesh that keeps us from doing the things we want to do. We could jump over to the book of Galatians where he picks up that same thread and he says, the flesh and the spirit at our war inside of you to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he goes on to talk about the fruit of the spirit, what a life yielded to Christ looks like in terms of love, joy, peace, patience, so forth and so on. And all of those are very important aspects. But there are two aspects in particular that Luke wishes to draw our attention to here in the book of Acts, which we will see over and over again. The first is guidance, and the second is assurance. Let's talk about guidance first. I'm reminded of a fable that Craig Groeschel told a number of years ago. I think he was the, one, the first one to come up with it. I've heard numerous pastors share this story. There's a fable that is told about a little bird that wanted to fly south for the winter, 
He was migrating south so as to avoid the cold, and he got off to a little bit of a late start. And he got caught in a in an ice storm, a snowstorm. And as the little bird was flying and trying to make his way south, his wings froze and got water, and the water froze, and he, his wings got too heavy to fly, and he fell onto the ground. And as he was there on the ground, he began to cry and wail and moan for what was his lot in life, he began to realize that here it is, I got off to a late start, I didn't do what I knew I should have done, and now I'm going to die, I'm going to freeze to death. And he had landed in a barnyard, and a cow walked over and saw the poor little bird laying there and pooped on him. And the, boor, and the bird was sitting there in the pile of manure and said, great, it's gotten worse, now I'm going to die, and I'm going to die in a pile of cow manure. But as he was sitting there, he realized that the manure began to thaw out his frozen wings. And he recognized that this manure, as horrible as it was, was a gift from God. And he began to celebrate and say, you know what, maybe there's hope for me yet. Maybe I will still get out of this snowstorm. Maybe I'll still survive. But here I am, trapped in this manure. How will I escape? And along came a cat. And the cat said to him, Dear little birdie, I have your best interests at heart. Will you allow me the privilege of fishing you out from underneath all of that manure? And the bird said, Why, yes, yes, I will. And the cat ate the bird. And that was the bird's tragic end, from which Craig Groeschel mentions three things you need to recognize when being led by the Holy Spirit. Number one, number one, not everybody who drops manure on you is your enemy. Follow the Holy Spirit. Number two, not everybody who offers to help you out of your situation is your friend. Follow the Holy Spirit. And number three, sometimes the best thing we can do Sometimes the absolute best thing we can do is to wait it out in whatever situation we find ourselves in, even though it stinks. Follow the Holy Spirit. And those are the three lessons that I want you to see this morning. These guys are told that they're going to go to the ends of the earth, they're going to proclaim the gospel. At least for some of them, they're motivated. Some of them, maybe not so much. But Christ's commandment to them is follow the Holy Spirit. And the first step to following the Holy Spirit is waiting on the Holy Spirit. He makes this statement while staying with them. He ordered them not to depart, but to wait. To wait for the Holy Spirit. Waiting is difficult. I hate it just as much as you do. You want to see something done. You want to accomplish something. You want to see God's kingdom come with power. You want to see things moved. You want to see people reached with the gospel. There is an urgency. There is an intensity there. These are not bad things. But do we really think we can reach the world in our own strength? 
You see, when you re- recognize that you can do things, that you can go places, that you can share the gospel, that, that you have the ability to do all manner of different things, there's a temptation in all of us to want to try and go and do those things in our own strength. And it's in these moments where we have to say, yes, God has blessed me with strength. Yes, God has given me resources. Yes, I have options. I have opportunities. There are things I can do. But at the end of the day, I have to wait upon the Holy Spirit. I always have to recognize that what I can do as opposed to what I ought to do how much I should say versus what Christ needs me to say, are these are distinct categories that I have to pray through and consider. We're not just to go and just blow everything up and tell everybody about Jesus and who cares what anyone thinks. There is both the proclamation of the gospel as well as living out the gospel. There is both the declaration of love that comes from a king. And absolutely, it is confrontational. It is going to be in certain people's faces. It is going to be offensive. But at the same time, there is more to living the Christian life than simple proclamation. We have to follow the the Savior whom we proclaim, so that the world that we're trying to reach with the gospel recognizes not only the truth of the message we're preaching, but the reality of its power in transforming our lives. And the world operates on the basis of its own self-ability, its own power to accomplish and to achieve. And the radical difference of the Christian, the major fundamental difference between you and me and everyone else out in this world is that they're accomplishing things in their own power and you and me are doing something that is really weird and really different. We want to achieve, we want to do, we have the same resources and abilities as others around us who don't follow Christ, but we're trying to work together with him. And sometimes what that means for some of us is that we got to do something that is completely counterintuitive. We have to stop and we have to wait. You say, what are we waiting for? Well, if it were just a matter of me just penciling it up here on a board, I wouldn't have a 30-minute sermon on it now, would we? I've been there just the same as you guys. You get that itch in your heart. You want to go. You want to do something. You're not sure if it's really what you ought to do. You're weighing it out. You wish that God would make it easy. You wish that as you sit there at your kitchen table in the morning, eating your Cheerios and your bowl of milk, that somehow you would pray and you'd say, God, just guide me by your spirit. And you'd say amen, and you'd look down into your bowl of Cheerios, and somehow the Cheerios would have drifted into a message saying, take the gospel to Afghanistan. (laughs) Right? And if you're like me, you've thought maybe, and you say amen, and you look down, and no. All the Cheerios ever spell is, oh, no. Because it's just a no, right? (laughs) It's never as easy as that. The question is posed, and we're going to see this as we work our way through the book of Acts. How will we know exactly when to go? How will we know exactly when to stay? How will we know exactly when to preach? How will we know that preaching needs to be supplemented with something more like action, like love? We're going to consider that as we work through the book of Acts. Luke doesn't give us definitive answers in this introductory paragraph. But what he does say is we need to be waiting on the Holy Spirit. 
if we can struggle through that weight, there's a blessing that comes. It's a blessing of assurance. I don't want you to flip there, but I just want you to listen. In Matthew chapter 28, similar account, different author, Jesus is giving the disciples the Great Commission. Go into the ends of the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What most people don't recognize is exactly how that account begins. In Matthew chapter 28, it says the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. Now, he's about to ascend into the heavens before their very eyes, and he's about to give them the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, the 11 disciples gather, and in verse 17, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. But notice what it says. Some doubted. Some doubted. Now, I know that Christ loves us. And the one thing he wants, number one, he comes to atone for our sins, to pay a penalty that we could never pay. And number two, he wants you to believe in him. He wants you not to have confidence in yourself, but to have confidence in him. So when Matthew concludes his gospel in this way, you have to understand it is devastating. After three years of walking with Christ, after three years of watching Jesus work and minister and move, raise the dead, heal the blind, restore hearing to the deaf, after watching him feed the 5,000 and walk on water and go to the cross and conquer the grave himself, after seeing all of that, after even having that Thomas moment in the upper room where Thomas says, I refuse to believe until I can touch the holes in his hands and put my hand in his side where he was pierced, even having seen all of the evidence, having observed all of it, they're on this mountain. He is about to ascend up into the sky before their very eyes. They've seen it all. They have all the evidence that they need. And Matthew's gospel concludes with this devastating critique. Jesus has come to do two things. One, to die for the sins of the world. And two, to get people to believe in him, to have confidence in him, to follow him. And these 11 guys who have spent the last three years with him, it says that they worshipped him, but some of this 11, some of this group, still had doubts. Now, for me, as well as for you, that can be encouraging, but it can be encouraging in a way that is also dangerous. Number one, encouraging, because I know you have doubts. I have doubts. These guys had doubts. And so we kind of reassure ourselves, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like just a really bad Christian. I'm in the same group of company as the 11 apostles. Thank you, Lord, that these doubts that maybe I struggle with privately aren't going to be the undoing of me because they weren't the undoing of these 11. And we reassure ourselves in that way. We draw encouragement and comfort from the fact that the founders of the church, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, these men also foundational stones, they struggled with doubts. So we say, it's okay, I have some doubts. But here's the difference Jesus came to do two things. And Luke is drawing on this as he writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Number one, to die for the sins of the world. 
And number two, to get people to have confidence in him. The Gospel of Luke recounts that Jesus has died for the sins of the world. What do you think the book of Acts is doing? Jesus is continuing. What he began in the Gospel, Luke makes it explicitly clear in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus is continuing. In the Gospel, he finishes salvation, and he's done. He's coming to do two things now. Accomplish salvation and get us to have confidence in him. So what do you think the book of Acts is about? Look at what he's saying to them in Matthew 28. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And if Jesus were an ordinary man like me, he would probably get down on his knees like I would and beg, come on, guys, I've given you all the evidence. I've given you everything you need. You are seeing firsthand. I am alive standing before you right now. Does he say that? No. He makes the statement to them, go and make disciples. You've got doubts. I've got doubts. The apostles had doubts. We can comfort and encourage ourselves with the knowledge that it's okay to have doubts. But the danger is that we will allow our doubt and our uncertainty to paralyze us into inaction such that when Jesus Christ gives us a command to go and proclaim the gospel, we would not follow forth in that command. And we would miss out on the blessing of growing in our confidence, not in ourselves, but our confidence in Jesus Christ. People come to me sometimes and say, my faith seems really small. I struggle with doubt. I read in the book of Acts, the apostles going out and preaching the gospel and all kinds of crazy cool things were happening and it seems like a life of adventure. And I just got to tell you, Pastor Joshua, I go to work, I do my nine to five, I come home, I try to be a good mom or a good dad to my kids. I put them to bed, I'm exhausted, I go to sleep, I get up, I do it all over again. I feel like I'm in a rut. I feel like God is far, far away from me. And the question I want to ask them is how have you waited upon the Holy Spirit to be faithful to take the message of the cross to those around you? My experience has been if you are actively beseeching the power of the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day, nine-to-five life, to open doors for the gospel. And if you are then walking in faith through those open doors to share the love of God with a lost and broken world, your life can be described in many ways, but boring is not one of them. Persecuted, ostracized, ridiculed, that fuddy-duddy weirdo guy that nobody wants to hang around with at the water cooler. These are things that I hear, but one thing I never hear from those people is that they're bored or that they feel like they're in a rut. They'll have struggles. I have struggles. But the thing of it is is that those struggles actually drive them to a greater dependence upon 
Jesus. Jesus' statement to the apostles, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for power from on high. Which means that they're not going to actually be able to live the Christian life to its fullest extent unless they can say no to their own ability in order to depend upon a greater power which Christ wants to baptize them in. Many, many years ago, Dr. Adrian Rogers, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, was giving a talk at a university, and he was addressing the student body. And he went through a long list of things. He said, if you're here today and you graduated from high school, valedictorian or salutatorian, would you please stand up? And a number of people in the room in the auditorium stood up that morning. And he said, if you're here today and you made all-American athlete or somehow you were all top 10 state in this or that or the other type of athletic competition, would you, would you please stand up? And a number of the athletes stood up. And he said to that same room of people, if you're here today and you're on the dean's list for uh, honor roll, you know, either A honor roll or B honor roll, would you please stand up? And he went through this whole list of different things, different accolades. And before he was done, after he'd, he'd gone through this whole list of different things, he had about half the room standing. And he said, today I'm here to talk to you about the Christian life and what it means to walk with Christ. And he says, first thing I want to say to those of you who are standing Remember, these are the brightest, smartest, strongest students in the room. Said to those of you who are standing, I want you to know that God can use you too. He said, I got good news and I got bad news. To those of you who are standing, God can use you too. But you weren't his first choice. If the goal is to lean upon the power of the Holy Spirit. If the goal is to lean upon Christ and to trust Him, then strength, human strength, is not a virtue. First Baptist Church. Next week, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is King. But as we come to the end of this introduction, Jesus is king, and he is to rule over every aspect of your life, which means that as we begin to work our way through the book of Acts, the first conviction we must come to, if our lives would look anything like the lives of the first century church, it must be because we have decided we will die to ourselves. We will surrender and yield to the Holy Spirit. We will wait upon his leading. And whatever we seek to accomplish, it will be done according to his power and according to his leading. That's my prayer for you this morning. Would you please bow with me? Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and in our lives in such a way that we, God, would be able to follow your counsel and your direction, that we would be willing to wait upon your spirit. We pray, God, 
that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would guide us by your Spirit. And we do ask, God, as we follow you, that you would grow us in our confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. So whether or not, Lord, we wrestle with the question, should I stay or should I go, help us to see it always that we should follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.